Hey, this is Aaron Brockett, lead pastor of Traders Point Church. Regardless of where you are tuning in around the world or if you call Indianapolis home, I just wanna thank you for tuning in to our weekly message podcast. Our prayer and desire is that God would take the content of these messages and use it to encourage you in your relationship with Jesus as you discover God's purpose for your life. All right, how's everybody doing today? Good to see you all. I want to welcome uh, all of our campuses. We are one church gathering in multiple rooms and locations around our city. So I want to say hello to you regardless of what campus you may be joining us from. Uh, today we are beginning a brand new series of messages that we are just simply calling uh, Fresh Faith. And we're going to be walking our way through the New Testament book of Ephesians together over the next several weekends together. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you might go ahead and get to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at that today. I am, uh, I've been reading this book uh, by Daniel Pink uh, called When, not W-I-N, but W-H-E-N. And he actually writes about um, just how productive or when we are the most productive during our day. Uh, scientists are sort of examining this right now, uh, trying to figure out like when are we in a, in a better mood or a worse mood throughout the day. It's interesting all the uh, research that they're getting back is that regardless of where you live in the world or how old you are or what language you speak or what culture you grew up in, as a, the human race, they just kind of graft it out. And most of us are in a good mood or at least a better mood. We have more energy in the morning and then in the evening. But between 1 and 5 p.m., our mood just drops. Would that be true for any of you today listening to this? That would be true for me. Oh, we got a clap, right? Uh, uh, it, it's just you just see the graphs. Like everybody's in a little bit of a better mood, then it dips right after lunch, and then coming up out of 5 o'clock, everybody's mood increases. And I love what he says in the book. He says, so therefore, I guess from this information that we have gathered, um, don't make life-changing critical decisions in the afternoon because you're just in a bad mood. And I think that all of us probably know what that maybe feels like, uh, call it whatever you will, bad mood, burned out, just feeling sort of, plateau. Maybe you don't know how you're feeling right now. Uh, maybe you're not all that excited. You know, we're getting ready uh, to enter into one of this, the busiest, most stressful, most wonderful times of the year, uh, right around the corner with all the holidays. And so as we get ready to do that, I want to just take a look at the content of this book called Ephesians and just uh, examine what it would look like for us just to get some, some fresh faith, a fresh wind, a fresh take in our lives. Uh, I think that David knew this feeling. In Psalm chapter 51, David voices this uh, to God. He says, um, bring me back from gray exile and put a fresh wind in my sails. In Ezekiel chapter 37, God takes the prophet Ezekiel out uh, to this valley and the valley bed is covered in dry bones and it represents the nation of Israel. And they just wonder if there is any more hope for them. And God says to Ezekiel in chapter 37, verse 5, he says, Look, I am going to, to put breath into you, and I'm going to make you live again. And I think that all of us know what that feels like, to just be in a place where we're just looking for some hope. We just need some fresh wind uh, in our lives, so to speak. And I think Ephesians gives that to us. I also think that what Ephesians can do is that it will give us a fresh understanding of who God is and the message and the purposes of God for our life. I think that there may be any number of us that may read through this 
and say, well, I, did, I didn't know that that's who God was. I really didn't know that that's what his message and his purpose for my life really is. I think a lot of people reject God for, for false reasons. I had a lady say to me here just recently, she said, I didn't know church could be like this. I always thought church was either boring or you just left feel, feeling beat up. And I thought, man, how tragic is that? And so I think that the content of Ephesians can help us with both of these things. I want to look at the first couple of verses and then just offer a few words of introduction uh, to this uh, book that we're going to study together. Verses 1 and 2, it says, this letter, it's a letter that Paul writes, uh, is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. And so what Paul is doing is he is writing a letter to encourage his friends living in the world-class city of Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was uh, a bit uh, intimidating. It was very impressive. Uh, There were um, a lot of scholars that were living in Ephesus because it boasted one of the largest libraries at the time. Uh, Travelers from the Roman Empire would pass through because of its strategic location Uh, The Temple of Artemis was located there, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So it was an impressive city, but it was also a corrupt city. Uh, Sex trafficking and prostitution were were common. In fact, archaeologists have uh, discovered what they believe to be was an ancient brothel located right across the street from that major library. And there were tunnels connecting the two underneath the roads. So it tells me there was a lot of people going to the library. All right, to... The study and, and so Ephesus was corrupt, it was impressive, it had all these things uh, going on. It was a city that was really open to spirituality. They had like 50 temples there, uh, all dedicated to different pagan gods. But very similar to our culture today, they weren't necessarily interested or open uh, to Jesus. And so Paul's writing to a group of friends that are living in this high pressure, fast paced, hostile world and they needed a fresh word of encouragement in their in their lives in in order to keep going now now why tell you all that about the city of Ephesus well aside from just knowing the context around uh, who this letter was written to I also think it's important for us to to remember because I think we can come to the Bible at times as modern sophisticated people thinking that this was um, uh, information that was written a really really long time ago to you know, country bumpkins who are kind of living out in the sticks and doesn't really relate to us today. But we need to understand that the vast majority of the New Testament were letters that were written to regular people like you and me that gives us information about the message and the purposes of God. And that message took root in cities. It took root in urban contexts where uh, people were living in this high-pressure, high-paced world, and the message of the gospel took off like wildfire. It's why we have a heart for the city. It's why we plant churches around cities around the globe. And so Paul writes to, to give them this encouragement, and, and whether you love the city or you prefer the country, it doesn't really matter because uh, every single one of us is faced with this question on a regular basis. It's just the question of who am I? It's a question of identity. And I just want to ask you to spend a little bit of time with this question today and through the series is just just who am I and how do you answer that question? And I think many times we look in the mirror to get an answer to that question. 
Many times we look at the person next to us, the person we're in a relationship to get an answer to that question. Maybe we look at what we do for a living or um, any number of outside external achievements. Most of those things we don't have full control over and so it's unstable at best. And so whatever it is that you're building your identity on, we just sort of lean our life up against it, so to speak, and it just keeps sliding out from under us because all of those things can change. I mean, if, if I, to be perfectly honest, if I'm not careful, then my sense of identity can get wrapped up in, in, how, in how the church is doing. And so when I feel like the church is doing really well and we're reaching lots of people and things seem to be going good, I can feel pretty good about my identity. And maybe things aren't going so well, or maybe there's some people that are upset or whatever, then I can kind of feel like maybe not as good about my identity. Man, that's a dangerous game. And regardless of what maybe your occupation is, maybe some of you found your identity in, in being a mom or being a dad. I and mean, on those days when you don't feel like you're being a very good mom, then your sense of identity lowers. And maybe on those days when you feel like you are being a good one, then maybe it kind of elevates. And it's just sort of like the weather. It can change in an instant. I had a friend of mine recently say to me, he said, man, you got to be really careful about this because if you take credit or if you feel good about yourself when everything is going great, then you'll also accept too much of the blame when things aren't going so great. And neither of those extremes are healthy. So what Paul's wanting to do, especially in chapter one, is he's wanting each one of us to find our identity and build our identity on something that is much more durable and substantial than outside changing circumstances. And I can't read through every single verse in, verse in chapter 1. I would encourage you to read chapters 1 and 2, just maybe in your own uh, personal time this week. But verses 4 through 14 of chapter 1, in the original Greek, all right, in, in, when we translate it into English, we put in periods and commas and all that kind of stuff, breaking up the sentence. In the original Greek, when Paul wrote verses 4 through 14, it was one long, glorious run-on sentence. Uh, English teachers hate it. Theologians love it. And it's like Paul's just like throwing it all up on us. He just wants us to know so badly uh, who God sees, how God sees us. And so let me look at this one critical verse, and I just want to camp on it here. It's verse 4. Paul says, Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us. Now these two little words here are so important in Ephesians. In Christ. That determines everything. To be holy and without fault, once again, in his eyes. So here's the, food, the, the truth that I just want you to let it wash over you, whether you fully understand it or whether you believe it yet. I just want you to let it sit with you, is that you were chosen in advance. That's an awesome thought because there really isn't anything any other relationship, any other thing in life that works that way. Because right now we sort of get our sense of achievement. Right now we are maybe loved or chosen or accepted by others based upon something that we do or how we perform or what we accomplish. We're just sort of conditioned to think this way. And the acceptance that we receive from others, even the people that love us the most, oftentimes, at least it feels like, it's got conditions attached to it. Therefore, it's really difficult for us to get our heads around the fact that God's love for us came in advance of anything that we could do. It came in advance of our existence, and his love for us is unconditional. Paul says God loved you and he chose you before he even made the world, before 
Your parents had even thought about you. God knew you and loved you. Now some people look at that verse and they say, well, um, that just means that God knew beforehand who would choose him. It's almost as if God looks down the long corridor of the future and he's like, oh, I see that Brockett is going to choose me one day, therefore I choose him back. But that's not what this verse says. This verse says that God's love rested upon us and, it, and he chose us before the world even began, before you were even a thought in your mom and dad's mind. Now, how in the world does that work? I have no idea. And anybody that says that they do know how it works is lying. They don't know either. The, the, the fancy like theological word for this is, is predestination and people can get into all kinds of debates over that. And honestly, there are just, the Bible says that there is a mystery to God and there are secrets that only God knows. And I actually find great comfort in that because it just, that, I think that's just part of the job description for God. That he would be privy to some information that I'm not. That he just understands some things that I can never answer, that I can never understand. And if I could understand it, then he wouldn't be God. And so for many times, we just want to know how this works. I don't know how it works. I've been in full-time ministry now for 20 years. And as I look back upon the course of people that I've been able to get to know and to work with, there are some people that I have spent so much time and energy um, you know, meeting with and talking to and having cups of coffee with, coffee with, and they're asking me questions and I'm trying to answer them and I'm trying to, to lead them to, to Jesus. And um, they, it just didn't, it didn't work. They, I didn't convince them. They, they left. They're no longer here. And there are some people that I feel guilty about that I haven't spent enough time with and I meant to get together with them, but I never could. I could never get around to it or I felt like maybe I didn't explain things very well. And then I, and then I only come to cross paths with them into the future and see that they're, they're in a relationship with Jesus and they're growing in wisdom and they're actually doing really, well, really, really well. And I'm like, oh, wow, maybe I should just not talk to as many people, right? Because I think I kind of got in the way. And there are some of you in the room right now, and you got saved, you crossed the line of faith, you, you got baptized, and that day, it even surprised the angels, right? The, the angels were like, whoa, check that out. Like, we didn't see that coming. Like, God, you're showing off with them. Like, how in the world does that work? They were showing no signs of responding to you, and somehow God got a hold of your head and your heart, and you can't explain it, and neither can I. But I, we can maybe come to this conclusion that oftentimes God will blow your mind in order to capture your heart. And that's what this truth is. I don't know about the other campuses here at the Northwest. That was a very polite golf clap. All right. That's just not too convincing. All right. But uh, it's only week one of the series. So I don't know how it works. And you know what? I don't need to know how it works. It's an awesome thought. That God would say, Aaron, before you could ever do anything for me, I chose you. Aaron, before you could ever prove yourself worthy, you're, you're worthy in my eyes. And part of the reason why chapter 1 is filled with this long run-on sentence is because God is the one taking all the action. Let me just get a little bit kind of nerdy on you. Uh, in chapter 1, there are 48 pronouns. 30 of them belong to God. There are 24 verbs or action sequences, and God is responsible for 20 of them. He blesses, he chooses, he adopts, he gives grace, he redeems and forgives, he lavishes, he makes his plans known, he unites us with Christ, he works and he guarantees. 
you and I, we are only responsible for four action sequences, and it's just simply this. We listen, we receive, we believe, and we hope. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that just take a load off? Like there isn't anything about that that's performance-based. There isn't anything about that that is based upon your ability to actually prove yourself as lovable. God just says, would you just be the recipient of this? I just want you to hear me. I just want you to receive it as a gift. I just want you to believe, and I just want you to hold on to hope. And he says he has chosen for us to be holy. And I, I don't know what you think of when you hear that word holy. For, for me, I maybe think of perfection, somebody who doesn't do anything wrong, but that's not what it means. The word holy just means to be set apart. In fact, just tap your neighbor on the shoulder right now. Just look at them and say, hey, man, you're holy. Just do it right now. All of our campuses say, hey, you're holy. And some of you did not believe a word of that, did you? You're like, I'm only looking at you and telling you this right now because he told me to. But you ain't holy, all right? <laughs> all it means is, is like God just chooses to say, hey, no, you're set apart. He says, yeah, God chooses to look at you and me as faultless. I'm not faultless. And neither are you. We know that. And yet he still says it to us. He says, I, you are holy and you are faultless. And so what's... What's, what's the determining factor there? And it's these simple words, in his eyes. In his eyes. I did not understand that theological truth until I had kids. And there are plenty of moments. <laughs> my kids are not holy and faultless. But yet I choose to see them a certain way. In fact, uh, this is my uh, six-year-old. Uh, her name is uh, Cadence. And uh, yeah, everybody just collectively say, aw, right? She's just, she deserves it, right? She's, she's a cutie. And uh, you can see by the look on her face, she looks so innocent and so pure, and she's not, right? That's just, <laughs> no, she actually is a ton of fun to be around. My favorite story uh, about Cadence is uh, um, when she was um, in her final weeks of being in diapers and she was walking at that point and she could talk to you in complete sentences, but she was still wearing diapers. And I think it's just because she liked having us serve her in that way. And, uh, and I remember she was in the pull-up diapers, the ones that have like the ripaways on the side. And I was like trying to get them pulled up and uh, we're sitting there. I'm like on my knees face to face with her. And I'm pulling her diaper up and they rip off of her and fell down around her ankles. And she looked at me and she goes, awkward. Right? Um, <laughs> She just kind of has this quick, like, witted sense of humor. She just cracks me up all the time. And uh, my wife says to me all the time, she's like, you know, she can get away with murder with you. She's got you wrapped around her finger, and I know it. She does because she, she might not be faultless, but all she's got to do is just look at me with that face. <laughs> and in my eyes, hey, listen, Paul says, this is how your heavenly father sees you. And it's not performance-based, and it's not on your ability to be lovable. He says, no, in my eyes, you are set apart, and you are faultless. And listen, the, the truth of that has the power to change even the hardest heart, if you'll just let it wash over you. See, some of us, we asked this question last week. It's like, where is God when life falls apart, and why isn't God responding? And for many of us, we've rejected God because of people. People that claim to represent God didn't do a very good job of it, so our hearts have grown hard towards him, and so we choose to say that he's out of touch or we, he doesn't care anymore. In fact, 
Peter actually addresses that question in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. He says, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. In other words, God, where are you in this world that is so messed up? God's not slow. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. And that word repent just means turn around and face him. Turn around and run to him. Turn around and head in his direction. And so for many of us, we look at this world and we're like, God, how much more jacked up can this get? Where are you? Why don't you intervene? And God's over there going, I want to. I'm just being patient because I got some kids out there that I want them to know I love them. I got some kids out there that are looking for hope. I've got some kids out there that are struggling. I've got some kids out there that are wrestling with anxiety and depression over uh, uh, their identity. It's like, I'm, I'm not being slow. I'm being patient. And there's a difference. And so this whole notion that, that God is angry, that God hates certain people, that God relishes the idea of certain people going to hell just isn't true. That's not how God sees you. God sees you as set apart and holy and chosen. How does he do it? And it's those two little words, in Christ. And one of the biggest hangups that so many people have, I just talked to somebody this last week that had this question as they said, you know, I don't really have too much objection to what I read in the Bible, but the biggest thing that just, I just can't get over it is the fact that, that Jesus would be the only way to God. I just can't get my head around that because in this world of endless options, menus, and customizations, how in the world can Jesus be the only way? It just kind of seems like cosmic arrogance to suggest that. And I want you to know that it is not arrogance. It's humility. The reason why Jesus is the way is because Jesus is the only one who humbled himself and went to a cross. Jesus is the only one who laid his life down so that you could be reconnected to God. So I can understand the logic behind, I just don't understand how Jesus can be the only way, but I can see the enemy twisting that all around. And instead of you seeing humility, you see arrogance. And how is it? That that is arrogance when Jesus says, I'll step forward so that when God looks at you, he sees my righteousness and I'll become your sin. So that way you can know that you have been loved and you have been chosen. Listen, God does not love you because of your potential. God didn't look down the long corridor of the future into 2018 and say, man, I have got to have you on my team because you would make such a great Christian. I didn't look at you and go, man, you are a phenomenal leader. She is such a great teacher. I've got to have her on my team. No, God doesn't love you because you're lovable. God loves you because he is loving. God loves you not because of what you could do for him or what you could offer him, but because of what he desires to do for you. Let that inform your identity. And it gets even better. Check this out. Verse 5, Paul says, God decided in advance which means before you could do anything to change his mind, God decided to adopt, that's the word, adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself. Here it is again, through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. I love that. It's almost like the, the, the question is, well, why would he do this? I don't know, just what he, he wanted to do it. He just wanted to because he would find great pleasure in doing it. And adoption is the word. God has adopted you and me into his family. And that is beautiful and helpful in helping us to understand what it is, his message and his purpose for us. 
Adoption means that we were not part of the family, but God brought us in and made us part of the family with all of its rights and responsibilities, with the inheritance attached to it. You're his child. I don't know, um, I don't know how many of you um, saw this video. It kind of made its rounds a, a few months ago of this little girl uh, whose foster parents surprised her uh, by uh, sharing with her that, that they were going to adopt her. And I love her response. Uh, take, take a look at this real quick video. Careful, open it up. There we go. I want you to read it. I'm going to be adopted? <laughs> we love you, sweetie. Thank you. We'll always be your parents. I love you I don't know how many of you have seen that. Uh, I saw it a few weeks ago, and I just played it over and over and over, and it just, like, took my breath away. Just like the, the, it brought tears to, to, to my eyes just to see her response. And then it hit me as I was just kind of thinking about this. Do you know the word for, for her response right there in, the, in that moment? Is, is worship. It's like this element that this little girl was moved to this place to recognizing that she'd just been adopted. And I think for so many of us, we've just lost the wonder. We, we've forgotten how lost we really were, how hopeless we really were without God to, to the point that it just feels ho-hum. I mean, to be, be honest, when you walked in here today, were you, were you walking in here with that kind of expectation? Were you walking in here to, ready to, 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 to meet and to spend some time with your Heavenly Father? Those of you that have adopted or you know somebody who's adopted a child, are they, are they your child? They may not share your biology or your DNA, but are they your child? Absolutely they're your child. With all of the rights and all of the responsibilities and all of the inheritance attached to it, and this is the word that Paul chooses to use to describe what God has done for us. He's adopted us into the family. The biblical word is covenant. You know, the Bible is divided into two sections. You've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we just think that that's like part one and part two, but that's not what it is. The word testament is the, another word for covenant. It's God's old covenant and now it's his new covenant. And the new covenant, it, the old covenant was based on everything that you could do to get in. And it was very glaringly clear that we could not achieve that whole list. The new covenant is all based on Jesus. It's all based on what he has done on our behalf to make us right with God. And so a covenant isn't a contract. A covenant is a promise. A covenant is God saying, I'll do for you even if you won't do for me. A covenant is, I'm going to love you even if it kills me. And God says, this is the kind of love that I have for my kids. Your, the love you have for your children, if you have kids in, in the room today, if you've got kids, the love that you have for them, can I ask you, is it dependent upon um, their behavior? Better hope not, right? We're all in trouble, right? Let's just, let's just get real for a minute. <laughs> Those of you that have got kids at home, uh, what, what real value are they adding to your life anyway? All right, uh, all right, can we just get real for just a minute? I'm not saying you don't love them. I'm not saying you wouldn't do anything for them. We would, all right? But like, seriously, like how much weight are they really pulling around the house, right? 
I mean, are they making more of a mess? Are they helping you clean up the mess without telling them to? All right, are they really, are they they contributing to the family income? No, right? And yet we love them. It's like, I, I choose to love you even if you won't. It's not based on your performance. It's not based on your attitude. A friend of mine was telling me this last week that uh, he and his wife caught their little three-year-old girl stealing M&Ms. And they were like, okay, this is a life lesson. We can't let her get away with this. And so they sat her down and they said, honey, they said, you need to know that when you come to know God, like that you want to obey his commands. And when you come to know God, that that stealing is wrong. And when you come to know God, you know, you want want to be honest. And this little three-year-old girl, she looked back at her mom and dad, got this big smile on her face. And she goes, I don't know God yet. Well played, well played. So why do you love your kids? Well, you love your kids based upon a covenant kind of love. And here's what this means. Whether you believe this or not, I want you to hear this truth. You may have given up on God, but he has not given up on you. I don't care what you have done. I don't care what you're currently doing. I don't care what's been done to you, how you feel about yourself, that where your sense of identity is coming from. You may have given up on God, but he has not given up on you. And when we are faithless, he is faithful. And some of you here today have been thinking that, that your actions and your behavior and your choices are what make you lovable, but not with God. God says, listen, You're one of my kids, and in Christ, I see you as holy and faultless. So here's a question I just sort of want to ask you to consider today. On a scale of 1 to 10, if 10 is being great and 1 is not so great, like how do you think God feels about you right now? And just be honest. And most of the time, this is based upon how we feel about ourselves or maybe the condition of our lives or our relationships. And can I just say to you that in Christ, the answer is always 10. There isn't anything that you can do to make him love you less. There isn't anything you can do to make him love you more. God chose you in advance and he loves you. And he just simply said, you might say, well, what do I need to do? We've already said it. Man, just listen. Just receive it. Just hold on to hope. Man, just just believe. God has already done the heavy lifting. And I want to wrap up with these last two verses, verses 13 and 14. It says, and when you believed in Christ, here it is, he identified you. As his own, by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his people. And I love this. He basically says that the Spirit of God that he has given to us is a guarantee that he has placed within us. And so you see, maybe you've heard this word before the Trinity. You've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're trying to figure out how that works. Don't figure out how it works, just figure out why. So, so God the Father chooses you. God the Son rescues and redeems you. God the Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing that he's going to come through on his promises. It's kind of like um, whenever you buy a house and uh, the real estate agent says to you, well, the seller needs some earnest money so that they know that you won't walk away from your promise. And so you lay down some earnest money uh, before you close escrow. God says, the Holy Spirit is my deposit. It's earnest money. It's a guarantee. How do you know God's going to come through on his promise? Because he's put the best part of himself into you. Because he's put the best part of heaven into you. And he says, I'm going to come true on my promises. And so this whole chapter is based on 
your identity, and I just want to ask you, what are you leaning your identity up against? Is it a relationship? Is it a job? Is it a role? And does it keep sliding out from under on you? See, see we have an enemy that uh, specializes in identity theft. <laughs> and he'll do everything that he can to get you to either think. It's, it's, it's where we all drift. We either have a tendency to think way too highly of ourselves or not high enough. And both of those things will derail our lives and twist up our identity. And so today, the simple message and the purpose of God is he just wants to tell you who you really are. He just wants to say, man, I've loved you and I've chosen you from the very beginning. And when you begin to embrace that truth, we begin in Christ. We begin to live from our identity, not for our identity. And that, that, there's a difference. So this summer, uh, there was a friend of mine that was telling me how years ago, his 17-year-old son was out with a, a friend of his. And the two of them got into trouble and they, they got arrested. And um, he got a phone call from the police department. He said, you need to get down here right away. Uh, we're still on site. Uh, I think it was like maybe some kind of vandalism or something. And uh, so he gets in the car. He drives down and his heart's beating out of his chest, thinking about, you know, what kind of trouble his son got into. And he pulls up on the scene. There's two police cars. There's the lights going. The doors to the both cars are open in the back. And he immediately spots his, his son. Handcuffed. You can see that, that he's been crying. He's looking down at his feet in shame. And immediately he, he's upset, you know. He's like, man, what, what did my boy do? And why is he in this situation? I raised him better than this. And, and he said, uh, as he's walking towards the, the car, the father of the other boy had beat him there, was already there. And he was at uh, his, he was in front of his son. And he was just chewing his son out up and down, screaming at him, cussing at him, yelling at him. And my friend Chris, he just said he stopped for a minute and he thought, okay, um, take a deep breath and think about what I'm going to say to my boy because what I'm going to say next is a pivotal moment and I want to get this right. And so he walked up to his son and his son wouldn't even look at him. And Chris just kind of bent down like this and he said, son, I need you to look at me. And slowly his son just looked up at him right into his eyes and he said, son, I know what you've done, but it's not who you are. I know what you've done, but it's not who you are. And that's all he said. And he just embraced his boy because he knew that his son could get beyond that moment. But what his father would say to him would be life shaping. Can I just say to someone here today, listen, God knows what you've done, but it's not who you are. God knows what's been done to you, but it's not who you are. You have a heavenly father who chose you in advance. He loved you in advance and it's unconditional. And there's been an enemy that has been hijacking your sense of identity for far too long. It's based upon your image. It's based upon how you're doing. It's based upon how you're feeling. Listen, I'm not saying those things aren't unimportant. I'm not saying that those emotions aren't real. I'm just saying there's a heavenly father who wants you to grab a hold of this truth, that your identity is based on something that is far more stable than the emotion right in front of you, than what people say to you or how they make you feel. 
I know what you've done. It's not who you are. Father, we come to you right now. And I know that I need to be reminded of this truth because the word that sort of comes to mind with how I feel right now is just overwhelmed. It just kind of feels like I'm running and I'm running to try to stay ahead. And I, I feel like the harder I run, the more I fall behind. And I'm just guessing that there's somebody else that feels that way too. Father, I pray today that we would just invite your spirit that is a guarantee of your promise into this room and into our hearts. We don't know how it all works, but we want to listen and we want to believe and we want to receive and we want to hold on to hope. And so I pray in these next few moments as we just reflect and take communion that you would meet us in that seat that we are sitting in and do a transformational work on our identity. And I pray that here in a moment we could worship just like that little girl in the video when she learned that she'd been adopted. May we never lose the wonder of that and keep us on mission because there's a whole bunch of lost kids in this world that need to see that and hear that and experience it. We ask this right now in Jesus' name, amen.